eighth consecutive week looking at this particular section of Matthew. Uh, we really kind of bogged down a bit. I hope it wasn't bogged down. We kind of slowed down at least, maybe not bogged down. Uh, I think Matthew 13:51 through the end of chapter 18 is the fourth major section of the book of Matthew, of the five. Um, and, and we sort of were chugging along and kind of came to a bit of a halt when we got to this section because it really, we get all this kingdom talk and, and then it just really starts to pound down on who is Jesus and what does it mean that he's dying on a cross. And it really slows down and Jesus kind of stops. And this is the longest section we've come to today. You've got first few chapters and then you've got Jesus talking in the Sermon on the Mount. And then you've got a couple more chapters, and then you've got chapter 10, where he deals with the commission to go and make disciples. And then just a couple more chapters in chapter 13, and what it means for the kingdom to be new and renewed. And then you've got this stretch all the way through 18, where it really deals with who's greatest in this kingdom. And the point, uh, there's two things I just want to emphasize tonight, I just kind of want to harp on. Um, hopefully they're arising from Matthew 18, and they're just arising from my sort of discipleship journey up to this point um, from my theology. And it's these two things, and it's one we've already talked about. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ is the cross of Christ. The kingdom of Jesus right now is the cross. The suffering of Jesus Christ is the kingdom in which we live right now. And the, and the second thing I want to really kind of throw at you is this. Um, we can't we can't live the Christian life without good friends. That's less sort of enrichingly theological, I guess, and more just, if you guys aren't, um, aren't in, man, I hate to say fellowship, because that just sounds like some sort of principle from Southern California that a megachurch pastor is writing about. If you don't have friends who are committed to your righteousness... Just they want you to live a righteous life. They want you to be like Christ. The Christian life is going to be impossible. Just absolutely, utterly impossible. You will not be a sanctified Christian. You can be a believer, and that's great. You can really sort of sink into Jesus to the point of understanding and knowing who he is. But you're not going to live a sanctified life. You're not going to know what holiness is if you don't have friends who are committed to getting you there. Um, it's, a, it's the end of a long sort of series of conversations and philosophical dialogues and theological trains of thought. It's called Virtue Ethics, and I encourage any of you who are at all interested in ethics and right behavior to look at Virtue Ethics. But Virtue Ethics culminates with what is a friend. And, uh, and I think that real communal kind of um, energy, that, um, that commitment to commonality, community, and friendship just really shines in Matthew chapter 18. So, um, so hopefully that will sort of hit us in our head tonight and sort of trickle down to our actions over the weeks and months and years to come as we act like friends to one another. So yeah, let's look at Matthew chapter 18 and we'll just kind of try to bring out those two things. But before we do that, I'm going to... Uh, hopefully echo the prayer of a lot of people celebrating this third week of Lent. Uh, this is the third Sunday in Lent as we prepare our hearts for Easter. And um, here it is. Uh, this is 
the prayer of the Sunday of Lent. Almighty God, who seest that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves, keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls, that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hopefully that will be a prayer for us this, uh, this week. So yeah, let's look at Matthew 18 and get into it because it's kind of a cool passage of Scripture and it culminates and we're going to spend just this night on it and a few thoughts on it and, uh, and then we'll sort of move into the last section of Matthew and the, um, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ as Easter hits us uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, Hopefully, it has been at least marginally evident over the last seven weeks that what we're going through leads up to tonight. Um, And now in our eighth week, we come to Jesus' concluding words, which Matthew records as the answer to this question. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, It's not an unfamiliar question. You got the people of Israel sort of interested in that same thought when they get into the land and they move forward as a kingdom. One of the one of their interests is who is greatest. And you see this with, with uh, sort of the judges and the period of judges and what it looks like to be great. And David and his mighty men and Solomon and his wisdom and this question of greatness seems to float to the surface. How do you be great in the kingdom of God here in Israel? And that floats to the surface right here as well. The disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, we got it. This new kingdom, this new mountaintop experience. How do we be great in this kingdom? And the answer to this question, I think, really starts with Matthew 13. And we, what we did was we retraced the history of Israel. We asked and answered the question, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? That kind of came up. We went up on the mountaintop with him, and we came back down, and we saw what it was like to live in the kingdom, which was the cross of Christ, and have faith in Jesus. And we transitioned from talk of the kingdom to talk of the cross. And this all happened over the last few chapters. And now the disciples want to know something very specific about this new kingdom. What demands are placed on those who want to be great? What do you have to do to be great? How do you get into and do well in the kingdom of God? And and Jesus responds with, as he often does, wordplay. He kind of does a turn of the phrase and says, here, I can wrap it up for you. This is what greatness looks like. So let's read the first few chapters. We'll just get into the text and less of my thoughts and more of God's, I guess. So I'm going to read, uh, I think, 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, Actually, he probably had to wait because the child probably knocked over a large amount of dominoes onto the ground and made life rather. And then when that sort of quieted down, he was like, all right, <laughs> shut up, kid. <laughs> he wouldn't say that, no. He says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child He is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then 18.5 says, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Exclamation point. 
Jesus responds with a wordplay. In verse 17 of the previous chapter, we talked about this last week, two weeks ago, where Jesus looks at the people around him who are, he calls them unfaithful and perverted generation. You unfaithful and perverted generation, how long will I be with you? And then we looked at where these words come from, specifically that word perverted or crooked or turned around. They're, they're turned, they're warped. And we, we rewound that word back into the Old Testament usage and we saw that it was a word used of the two tribes, two and a half tribes of Israel who wanted to stay outside the land of Israel. And Joshua is talking to them and saying, why are you making crooked the whole people? You're confusing everyone because you've been brought to the very edge of the promised land and here you are standing at the River Jordan pointing people back the other direction. You're making people long for Egypt. You're making them turn. Why are you doing that? You're standing at the gates of paradise and you're pointing people back to Egypt. You're making people turn around. You are crooked. And they gave an explanation, but this is sort of the usage of that word. This is where when you re rewind that crooked term, that turn, that's what it goes back to. This kind of a, you're, you're turning people around. You're making them confused. You're a perverted generation. And that's the same thing that's happening with the disciples. They go up to the mountaintop. They come back down. People are begging to be, save us, heal us, bring us into the kingdom. We can't even do that. We don't, we don't have enough faith to let you get into the kingdom. We're just going to stand here on the banks of the river, point you the other way around. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Converted there at just the word turn. Unless you turn and become like children. So you're a turned generation, you're a crooked generation, you need to turn and become a childish generation. And a crooked person stands on the banks of the Jordan and points people back to Egypt. A childlike person goes... Step in the water, I'll step in the water, and you lead the way for a whole millions of people behind you to cross with you into the promised land. That's the difference between crooked and childlike. God says go, okay, and it turns out, and this is what's crazy about it, being childlike is instantly and brilliantly, I think, communal. It instantly becomes a community thing. Just like you're the person who parts the river, God's parting it at your footsteps and you go into the land, he immediately starts talking about whoever causes one of these ones to stumble, it'd be better for him to be thrown into the depths of the sea. Think here, Egypt. <laughs> be better to be still in the Red Sea than for you to be here turning people around. It's not just about you. Your faith affects everyone. If you're going to be standing here at the banks of the Jordan turning people back around, it would have been better if you would have just drowned in the Red Sea. This is that idea. Your lack of faith affects everyone. It's instantly a community thing. Now, he says, unless you are turned and become childlike, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Whoever then humbles himself as this child humiliates himself, makes himself low, get down, quick, kind of humbles himself. 
Now, this is an expression of an attitude, right? You become a lowly kind of person. You get down. And this is... (laughs) I told you. This is a better lesson than I could do. Become like a child. Whatever that he's doing. You got to get humble. And so we often take this rightfully so in terms of like 1 Peter 4. Or 1 Peter 5 or James 4 where it's humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the, at the proper time? Whatever time. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the appointed, appointed time? Or due time, I think. What? Due time. Due time? That sounds good. And, and James, <laughs> let's go with that. Translation committee over here. Uh, or in, similarly in James 4, and we take this as an inner attitude, an attitude of the heart, you know, it's, you lying on your belly in some sort of active sense isn't it. And so it's, it's some sort of inner character trait of humility where you consider yourself low. I mean, that's exactly right. You need to get down. You need to, somehow inside, you need to become a kind of person who acts out of humility. You need to become a humble person. You want to be great in the kingdom of God, it's about becoming a humble person. And you kind of go, all right, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, I, I get it. Broadly speaking, well, the Old Testament usage of this term is much more, um, it's much more behavior term. Like, they don't shy away, especially like Leviticus, the psalmist, they don't shy away from saying, here's how you humble yourself, you fast. You want to be humble? You need to pray. Humble is giving up something. It's a sacrifice. That's what humble is. You want to be a humility, you want to have humility, you want to be humiliated, you do these things. And there's no disconnect between the behavior and the attitude. It's just this, it's all wrapped up together. If you act like a humble person, you become a humble person. It's just how it works. Leviticus 16.31, where one is made humble not by working on the Sabbath. Humble yourself by refraining from work on the Sabbath. Leviticus 23, 27, one is made humble by bringing an offering to the Lord. It's how you're humble. Psalm 34, 13, one humbles his soul with fasting. Philippians 4, 12 even, where it talks about, I've learned to live in with humble means. Humbleness is tied to the amount of money you have. It's part of humility. You learn humility through being poor. Everybody here is like, hey, man, you know, like, at least at least I'm there, you know. I might be failing in lots of parts, but I can do poor. I'm not suggesting that what I'm about to say comes directly from the text, but I am endeavoring to convince you that the text makes more sense in this context. Right here. Try to remember this. You shape your character through your habits. And thankfully... We're habitual people. You have lots of habits. You brush your teeth, you don't think about brushing your teeth. I don't know if you have to be made to brush your teeth or not, right? But if, once you get going, at least, it's not like, like I was at the dentist this week, and they're like, ah, 31 has an inclusion on the third shadow of the house. Like, well, besides like slightly crying there in the dentist seat, going, you don't think that when you're brushing. You're like, I better... 31, 15, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 
circular is better, by the way, which is why you have electric toothbrushes. Spend the money on one. My wife did. Finally, we have an electrical one. And circular is better. Otherwise, you might have receding gums, and you might do it's all these things. You don't think about this. You have habits. When you're driving, oftentimes you can get somewhere without having thought about it. For some of you, it's not that great if you're more single-minded and you're starting to hold down a conversation with somebody while you're driving and you end up, I turn on my parents' road every time I drive north on Game Farm Road. Every time. Driving along, there he goes. My wife's in the car, I turn on the turn signal. Thankfully, I have a habit of turning on the turn signal and she goes, mm, mm, oh, I know. Just thinking about brushing my teeth. <laughs> Every time. Just because it's what I did. Uh, I'm still a good driver. Huh? We, thankfully, we live with habits. They say that 70% of what you do during a day you don't necessarily think about. I've heard higher numbers than that. I've heard low. But it's, it's a good thing. Otherwise, you're... Your, your brain would explode or you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. Just if you had to think about every single movement, every single thing, you don't have to concentrate on it all. You can, you can put on your, your football pads and, and boot up and strap your... And while you're holding down a conversation and listening to your coach and getting some... You can do this. Or if you had to think about all of it, and if you were like, the bunny chases the thing around, and then, if you were doing that every time... There's no way you could hear, you know, hey, shotgun formation, I want four wide, and I want to tuck our tight end in and doing a slot pattern, you would just, you'd miss all that, and, you know, you'd get hit really hard. You wouldn't do it the next time. And thankfully, we have habits, but it's, of course, obviously it works against us sometimes as well, because we develop what are called bad habits as well. Humility is a habit, in fact, a good habit, before... It's an internal posture. Humility is going and offering something up that you didn't want to offer up. It was fasting when you didn't want to fast. Humility was praying when you didn't want to pray and ceasing from work when you really had things to do before it's an attitude that you act out of. A character trait or a virtue that's a part of who you are only gets there by doing it, by repetition. And just because you act humble one day doesn't mean you're humble. When you act humble two days, doesn't mean you're humble. When you give something up on the third, it doesn't mean you're humble. But that's how you form the habit that forms the character that forms what you did with your life and who you were and how people remember you. That's how you get there. And so I think that, that continuity that the Old Testament presents, specifically those, the law presents... If you want to be a humble, he uses these same terms of humble, gracious, kind, compassionate. And it ties them to, so do this and do that. Now, I'm not suggesting you create a rule book for your life, though in a certain sense I am, I guess. I'm suggesting that if you want to become a sanctified person, you start working on your habits if you want the attitude in your life to change, you start working on what you do when you get up in the morning. As you act, you form habits. As you form habits, you change your character, and as your character is formed over time, it hardens into place. And if you act out of vice and selfishness and hate for long enough, you've seen enough news where they show the suspect on the, or the, the convicted, 
and you look into his eyes and you think to yourself, there's no, there's no passage of James you're going to read or lecture on the happiness found in generosity that you can give that's going to change this guy's mind. He is hardened into something awful. And the ancients said, you pray for a miracle and you lock them up. Aristotle said you kick them out of the city because they are vicious. <laughs> Whereas we're shooting for just the opposite. You're the kind of person who instinctively is humble. Instinctively is selfless. A virtue then is something which is always better to have. It's at the core of who you are and it's rightly called a part of your character. And Jesus said that greatness is found in the kingdom of heaven through the virtue of humility. By acting out of this defining posture, which I think is great for humility. Something is greater than you are and worthy of your reverence and your trust. Humility in a nutshell. And then immediately, bang, immediately after cutting to the quick of the disciples' characters, I like the cutting to the quick, he turns his attention on how you can act in community. This strikes me as brilliant. You must become like a child, and you must be careful to care for children. It's, there's no disconnect for him. You need, to, you need to act like a child. You need to become childlike, and you need to take care of this guy. And, and these. And you better not be a stumbling block. And you better not cause people to stumble. And you better to cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, lop off your leg, than let it be a stumbling block. That's keeping people out of the out of the kingdom. Because a childlike person needs to step into the water of the Jordan so that everybody can walk behind them. Otherwise, you're crooked and turning people around, and it's always an in-community. So if you're going to humble yourself, you will only experience or evidence this humility in community. You can't experience, you can't be humble by yourself doesn't work that way. You will never experience or evidence humility without anybody else in your life. For the one you trust cares for each of the little ones, so too must you. The one that's greater than you, under whom you have humbled yourself, his character is to care for the little ones. And that's what you're shooting for. And then you, you start like tracing down this passage, stumbling blocks your foot or your hand cause you to stumble in verse 8. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, verse 10. The character of God is to go after the lost sheep, verses 12 through 14. And then you get to 15 through 20 and you get, hey, here's what a church is like. Here's what a church is like. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not, Take one or two with you, so that the, by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst." He says, my heart is to go after people. My heart is to go and be 
caring for, forgiving people. That's what I want you to be doing as a church. In community, go and get people. If you didn't get them with the first try, go and take more people. If somebody is lost, I don't want you to just go find them. Go and grab the 99 sheep you left on the mountain and go take the sheep with you and go find them. If it takes the whole herd to bring them back, go get the whole herd. I love how he specifically mentions mountains there. He comes down from the mountain and says, greatness in the kingdom isn't being on top of the mountain. It's going and finding the people who wandered away from the mountain and bringing them back. So you're on the mountain, that's great. I'll leave you, and I'm going to go find other people. And even says, I will leave the, leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying. Not by accident. Is it the same word that's used just the previous chapter about going up on the mountain, on the high mountain? This, then, is the progression. God comes after those who are lost, so we go after those who are lost. First privately, then with two or three witnesses, then the whole church, then the whole 99... And when you have to kick a brother out of fellowship, God's in the midst of this too, for he is still after his lost sheep. And that's why he's talking about where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there with them. When you're doing church discipline, I'm right there. Because church discipleship is what we're about here. It's what we're doing. We're discipling people to become like, we're bringing them to the mountain. Come on, this kingdom experience. We want you into this. We're going to get you. I'm right there. When you're doing that, I'm with you. And this culminates, this whole chapter comes to an end with this rather broad story of forgiveness. It's a parable you've probably heard, no doubt heard before. A man forgives his servants their great debt. One of the servants who has just been forgiven this enormous debt goes and demands that one of his servants pay back a very small debt. And when he can't, he throws him into prison and becomes just this terrible representation of his master. And when the other servants hear about this, they go and get him in trouble, essentially, because he's done something which strikes everyone as horribly wrong. And it may seem like a change of scenery or an isolated story, but I think it really just is a continuation of this thought of greatness. How do you become great? Well, forgiveness. Becoming a friend of righteousness is forgiving as you have been forgiving. Becoming a humble person is forgiving people as you have been forgiven. Living in community and drawing your brothers and sisters to Christ-likeness is forgiving people like you've been forgiven. Because that's how you become a humble person. You absorb the wrong of another without spitting it back into them. You absorb the hurt and vile. You absorb the debt of another because this is the kingdom. Or better, like the point I was trying to make to begin with, because the cross is the kingdom. Because the experience of the cross of Jesus Christ is the experience of the kingdom of God. And if you want to be great, you absorb people's hate and you absorb people's rejection and you absorb people's sin and you forgive them and it's excruciating and it's painful and it's like dying a terrible death when you have to forgive people that's what it looks like forgiveness is greatness in the kingdom because 
if here and now the cross is the kingdom, then forgiveness is the way of the kingdom. We learn to live forgiven by forgiving. In fact, this is, this is the point I was trying to make earlier. You want to change the kind of person that you are, you change your habits. And I think Jesus is trying to draw out that forgiveness is where the mind meets the will. When you have to forgive somebody, what you believe about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection becomes who you are as a person. You want to change your character, you go out and change your actions. So you take this belief that you have and you put it into practice. And that's how the mind gets down to the will, is by you putting something into practice. You believe that it is better to give than to receive, well, that's great. You want to be a generous person? How do you get that belief down to your character? You start giving things away. You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? You want to be the kind of person that lives as a redeemed, forgiven person? Well, how do you do that? How do you change the way you live? You start forgiving people. You live a forgiving lifestyle. If you have been convinced of something, like the truth of the kingdom, and you want to live in that truth, you begin to change your habits by action. You, you become a forgiving person by being convinced of God's call to forgive, and then performing an act of forgiveness, and then habitually forgiving. And that's just not going to happen without friends. The outward expression of the pursuing forgiveness of God is the church. He says, the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. I'm out there because of forgiveness. This is, this is sort of a... Well, here, let me break it down for you. This is, what, this is how I see it. I could be wrong. I'd be interested in your feedback. Paul in 2 Corinthians goes at great length about... Moses' veil, right? Moses wore this veil so that the glory of God didn't get in the midst of the people. He said, if my glory goes out in the midst of the people, I will destroy them. If my character seeps into the people of God, it will kill them. Because holiness is this veil. Holiness separates me from you. That's what holiness looks like. Holiness looks like a curtain that separates people from God. In the Old Testament, that's what holiness looks like. You come to the temple, you see the curtain, you desire for something else because you see a curtain and you long for holiness. Holiness looks like that curtain. And you're thankful for the curtain because if that were torn in two, you'd be dead. It keeps God from destroying you. So Paul says that, Moses wore the veil that stopped the glory of God. It says, most of your translation says the glory was fading in 2 Corinthians 4. It doesn't say that. The fading is never... It says it stopped it. The glory couldn't get beyond the face of Moses so that it wouldn't destroy you. In the New Testament, holiness looks like blood-stained Calvary. It looks like a torn veil. Holiness now goes and forgives 
people. That's what holiness looks like. Holiness looks like Jesus' death and resurrection. In the Old Testament, you have holiness looks like a curtain. In the New Testament, holiness looks like a blood-stained veil or a blood-stained mountain with a torn curtain. In the crucifixion, holiness looks like blood-stained forgiveness. It is the life of the cross that sends people out to forgive. The excruciating task of loving people towards God is what holiness looks like now. I think it's a radical transformation of the description of holiness. And then after this idea of, all right, the veil's torn, God's going out, Matthew then ends the book by saying, all right, now you go out. That's what it looks like for you. You now go out and make disciples of all nations. And this excruciating task, this painful task of absorbing hate, going like feet dirty kind of, what are we going to do about Selma, Alabama and racial relations that haven't improved much in 60 years? What are you going to do about hungry people next door and down the street? What are you going to do about, you know... Uh, West Liberty Cares. What you, this kind of tension and hate and debt that there seems to be to pay demands an unusually large amount of forgiveness. And I think it's excruciating because it's an active task of going out and applying the forgiveness of God to people. And it leads to the vision of God, and it's worth it. Who then is the greatest? The one who sees God through the humiliation of forgiveness. So that's what I have from Matthew 18 and that sort of summary of that. Um, interested in your thoughts? That's clear as mud? Did you?